If you would turn to John chapter 2. John 2. If you're a guest with us today, we at LifePoint, we walk verse by verse, word by word through the Bible, and we are walking through uh, the Gospel of John. And so we have made our way to chapter 2 last week, and we're in the second part of this. Last week we saw um, Jesus at a wedding with his mother and his uh, disciples and likely his brothers as well, his family, and, and they are there, and he does this incredible miracle of changing, changing the water uh, into wine, and from that, uh, he's going to move uh, to the temple, and we're going to see a contrasting picture of Christ today. So last week, there was just this beautiful tenderness uh, from Jesus in regard to uh, what he did at a wedding to uh, save the embarrassment, and, and we're going to see a, a flip side of that. We're going to seem very passionate today in regard to uh, what was taking place in the temple. So look with me, if you would, please, in John chapter 2. Uh, Verse 12, and we're going to go today through verse 17, and then we'll pick up the next part of that uh, a couple weeks from now. So John 2, verse 12. So after this, this is after the wedding in Cana. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sowed the pigeons, Take these things away, they do not make my, and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So let's walk through this today, and I want to, just by way of introduction, I want to touch on what we see in verse 12, if you'll look with me that again. It says this, And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. I love the aspect of what it tells us about Jesus here. That Jesus had brothers, and he hung out with them. Jesus had disciples that he was pouring his life into, and so he had these relationships with them. Jesus had his mother who was traveling with him, at least at this particular point in time. And I think sometimes um, we, we, we sing these songs like we just sang about Jesus, and there are these, these really big concepts and these big ideas about God. But I think sometimes we, we forget about that Jesus was a brother. And so as they get down to Capernaum, which is... Um, was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, about 20 miles from, from Jerusalem. And he gets there, and they spend a few days, and they're getting ready to go up to Jerusalem to the Passover. And so what do you do when you get together with families? Sometimes families argue when they get together. Sometimes families laugh together. They eat together. They cook together. Uh, there's conversations about things. And so for a couple of days before Jesus goes up to the Passover, the first Passover that is after his baptism and his public ministry is beginning, he spends a few days in Capernaum just spending time with his family and his friends, which indicates to us this unique, beautiful picture that, yes, this is the Son of God. Yes, this is the Messiah. But he was also a man. He was also someone who had uh, people in his lives and had um, great relationships um, with them. And so they get ready to go now to uh, Jerusalem for this first Passover. And they probably likely are talking about the meaning of the Passover 
um, before they go up. And we're going to see another side of Jesus, and it's going to be quite um, a, a more drastic side of what we looked at last week. And so if you weren't here last week, um, to, to run out of wine um, at a Jewish wedding was an embarrassment for the groom and the bride-to-be, and they would have never really lived this down before. They have always been referred to those who, who didn't plan and didn't prepare. And so Jesus does this behind-the-scenes miracle, and then from there he goes, and it's, just a t- it's a very tender, loving miracle that he does for these. And now he goes to the temple, and things are going to, we're just going to see a whole other aspect of, of Christ in the text today, but I I need you to hear this this morning. What we're going to see is a fiery Jesus. We're going to see the fury of Jesus in regard to his glory and that the worship place should be a place of prayer, but it's just as holy what he does, just as God-like. It's not less than him. He's He's not blown a fuse like we can do. Um, Jesus has a righteous anger where he doesn't sin. We have an anger where we sin. Jesus is not sinning here. And so, so I, want, I want you to keep that in mind as we walk through um, this today. There are times when we encounter Jesus and he is not safe. Um, I, I really like C.S. Lewis. I don't necessarily agree with everything C.S. Lewis ever wrote. But I think one of the, he, he's written some great books about God and stuff. I think the greatest thing that C.S. Lewis ever wrote was a short section in The Lion, the Witch, in The Wardrobe. And I just want to, before we get into the text, I want to quote it this morning. So Mr. Beaver and Susan are chatting. They're having a conversation uh, together. And Mr. Beaver says to her, Aslan is a lion, the great lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous, she says, about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So we're going to see Jesus today, and he's not safe. He's got a whip in his hand. If he were to come in here today swinging that thing around, we would be fleeing for the doors and taking cover. Now, he's not attacking anybody. He doesn't attack anybody in the text. He's not after a person. He's after the religious system that was robbing people of connecting their lives with God. And that's what he's after, and that's what he's taking. And so we will see that reality um, about him today. So let's walk through this. First thing I want us to see this morning and discuss is let's understand the context of what is taking place in the text here together. So look with me in verse 13, for it sets the context of this. So John 2, verse 13. the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So I want to just briefly touch on two things. I want to talk about Jesus in Jerusalem just for a moment, and then I want to talk about Jesus and the Passover. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they only give us one instance that ever communicates that Jesus as an adult, as a kid, we know that at age 12, Mary and Martha um, had left Jesus at the temple, and, and they came back and they found him there. But the next time that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say anything about Jesus um, at the temple or Jesus in Jerusalem, um, is the very last week of his life where he is arrested and he is crucified at the end of the week. John, on the other hand, 
gives us several other instances of Jesus being in Jerusalem. And I think the reason we have some other instances is this, is it's been about 30 years uh, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their Gospels. John has waited uh, in the 80s, 90s now. It's probably been, again, about, about 30 years. And so John's going to give us a perspective that's not fresh within the mind of the church that is connected with um, the Synoptic Gospels. And so John gives us several instances of Jesus being actually in Jerusalem. He is uh, at three Passovers, John chapter 2, verse 13 here, John chapter 6, verse 4, and then in John eleven fifty five we see him in Jerusalem at three Passovers. John chapter 5, verse 1, he's at one of the feasts. It's, he doesn't tell us which feast that he is at. John chapter 7, verse 2, and verse 10 indicate that he's at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem at that time. And then in John chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus is there in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication. And so John kind of gives us a little bit more detail about that. So let's talk about Jesus and the Passover. Now, the Passover fell on the 15th of Nisan, which is, which is our month of April. And according to Jewish law, it was obligatory for all Jewish males who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem to attend every year uh, the Passover. Now, for, if you are a faithful Jew and you were deeply committed to your faith, you wanted at least at one time in your lifetime to be able to travel from wherever you live to make your way to Jerusalem and to participate at least in your lifetime at one uh, Passover. Josephus is a famous first century Jewish historian. He estimates that one of the Passovers in his lifetime that Jerusalem swelled from about 250,000 people upwards to about 2.5 million people. Most people estimate that during Passover there were at least a million people that had come from all over the world and come within Israel to the Passover. And so likely most of the time there was about a million people that were there. This was the greatest of all the feasts uh, that the Jews had. Now about a month out from Passover, the Jews began to uh, clean things, and so they would straighten up the roads, they would straighten bridges, um, they would go to the, the graveyards and the tombs, and they would paint the tombs white. Um, with the weather and all the stuff that's there, they would kind of fade and they would get brown. And so they would brighten up all the tombstones and, and they would do this. They would go through their homes. They would get rid of, of all of the leaven in their homes because that was one of the things that they had to, to rid their homes of uh, during that. It was a time to spring clean. That's, where, that's originally where spring cleaning came from, was connected with the Jews of getting rid of the leaven uh, that was in their house. But there was one place within Jerusalem that nobody was thinking about giving any kind of thought to cleaning and straightening up, and that was worship at the temple. And it was absolutely chaotic uh, in the first century. As a matter of fact, it was so chaotic that we see here Jesus at the beginning of his ministry going into the temple and cleaning it out. We also believe, and I believe there were two of them, uh, that also at the very last week of his life when he rode in to town, I think he also cleaned the temple out again. So I think he did that twice. And so at the beginning of his ministry, he did it. John shows us here, and I think he did it at the very end. Now Malachi writes something interesting that I think we have to connect with this text. Just listen to these. This is Malachi 3, Old Testament prophet, verse 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is about John the Baptist. And then it says this, And then the Lord, speaking of Jesus, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, and behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now Micah 3, 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And so it's got this idea. John the Baptist is going to kind of clear the way, make the way. Jesus is going to come in. He's going to step into the temple, and he's going to bring a cleansing to it to start back the, the right idea connected with worship. So that's the context of this. Well, let's, let's talk about this. What did Jesus find that day when he stepped into the temple? So let me just give an example. We have the Fars over here. The Fars are Gentiles, but they're going to be Jews for us today, all right, if y'all don't mind. So, so here's a Jewish family. They live in Athens, Greece. And they're working there. They're doing commerce. They've never been to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover feast. But this is the year that they're going to. So the Fars travel from Athens and their local synagogue there. And they travel all the way to Jerusalem. Well, the problem is when they get to Jerusalem is that everybody over the age of 19 has to pay the temple tax. Well, they do commerce in Athens. All they've got is Greek and Roman coins. They don't have any Jewish coins. They don't have temple shekels. They don't have any of that kind of stuff. And so you've got to make change. If you ever traveled before and you've had to go to a place to exchange money, sometimes you know they gouge you with fees and a number of different things of, the, of that nature. And so what, what Jesus found in the temple that day, and this was very commonplace in the first century, was this, is that you would come into the temple and if you wanted to make a sacrifice, but ever if you came in, you had to you had to pay the temple tax, which was about um, two days' wages of the common man. And so you'd have to pay that, and it went into the temple treasury, and it would take care of things that were connected with the temple throughout the rest of the year. Well, Joe went in, and he went over to Mark Verlander, and he was sitting at a table, and Mark Verlander had a corrupt table, in which most people did, and this is what was what took place. You would come in, and you needed to exchange your money. And so they would say, yeah, I'll change your money for you, but it's going to cost you this much to change it. If you had a rather large Roman coin, they would charge you extra fees because they had to, they had to give out more change to you. And so, so Joe Farr would not only have to pay a temple tax of two days' wages, but he would have to pay a fee to that money changer there was probably three to four days' wages on top of the two days' wages. So Joe steps in to pay the temple tax, and instead of just getting changed for two days' worth of wages, now he's got six days' worth of wages that are gone because of what was going on. And what happened is all these money changers were in there were in it to make a buck. And it was corrupt, unbelievably corrupt. Um, they could have easily just changed that, um, uh, but... But what was bad about it is that they really began to extort the poor and they really began to put down the poor and it caused a lot of issues. So not only did Jesus find the money changers in there extorting people and bribing people basically, but you also had this. So you were to come into the temple and you had a a lamb or you had a pigeon or you had a dove that you were going to bring in there for the sacrifice. Uh, Josephus estimated um, that during most Passovers during the first century, 250,000 animals were sacrificed during the week of Passover. I mean, just uh, an exorbitant amount. But you were to come into the temple and you were to come from your hometown and you were to bring this animal in. They had people within the temple. Let's just pretend like this is the court of the Gentiles. They had people in the temple and you would bring your animal up and, and Carl would, Car would um, bring his animal up to me. And if I was one of those people, I would take Carl's animal and I would look at it and I would go, mm, sorry, 
this animal's blemished, and I would give it back to Carl. So now Carl's got an animal that he's brought. He's raised from his hometown. They brought it all the way into Jerusalem for the sacrifice, but I have a job of inspecting all the animals, making sure that they're unblemished, and Carl can't do it. And Carl's like, what do I do? And I say, hey, bud, hey, come with me. I got a friend over here named Josh Weems. He's a lawyer. You can't trust lawyers, you know. And so I would bring Carl over to Josh, and guess what Josh has? He's got so many animals that he can sell one now to Carl. Now Carl's got an animal he didn't know what to do with, and it's a fine animal. And now Josh has got an animal, and I'm, I'm going to get a kickback from Josh because I'm making Josh money, and so I'm getting a kickback. And Carl's having to spend extra money to get an animal for the sacrifice. And by the way, let me just ask this question. Do you think Jesus was happy about that when he walked in? We see why. And so this is what he found in the temple. He found exploitation of the poor. He found bribery. He found kickbacks. He found lying. He found manipulation and all of this kind of stuff. And so that's what Jesus found in the temple that day. And by the way, guess who was behind all of that? The religious leaders. You want to know why Jesus had an issue with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because they were behind this. Um, If you go back and look at some first century documents, Jewish documents, they called this of what was happening and taking place um, within the temple. They called it uh, the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest. Guess who was making money off of all this manipulation and lying and all this kind of stuff? The high priest was. So he was, he was getting money. Everybody was making money. It was incredibly lucrative. And so this is what Jesus found um, at that particular point in time. Now, at one time, all of this was outside in the streets of Jerusalem. If you were to come in in Jerusalem, you'd find a money table somewhere. You can make your exchange by the time you got to the temple. You already had all of that stuff done. You, maybe you could buy an animal outside in the street somewhere of the temple, but all of that was there. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene, guess where this is? So let's pretend this. This is the court of Gentiles right here. So you literally would come into the temple. You would come into the court of Gentiles. The deeper end of the temple, this is what it was. You'd have the court of Gentiles. You'd have the court of the women. You'd have the court of the Israelites. You'd have the court of the priests. And then you would have the Holy of Holies. And so let's say that this is, and the court of the Gentiles was about two acres, kind of spread out and, and connected with the, there. And so you were to come into the court like this, in a room like this, that was for Gentiles, watch, Gentiles to come to worship Yahweh, for them to pray, for them to sing, for them to hear God's Word read. But inside, now, no longer outside, inside the court of the Gentiles, inside the building, you've got oxen, you've got dove, you've got money-changing um, Have you been to a farm with cows? They have things that come out the backside of them. So you've got, watch this, you've got all of that inside the temple. You've got animal stuff, you've got animals. And so there's no way any kind of worship was happening and taking place. And this is is what Jesus found. And there's a great lesson here before we move on to the next point. And it's this, there is such a danger that what's out there in the world, this thinking, is allowed to come into the church, and it gets labeled normal, and it should never be so. But this is what Jesus found that day. All right, thirdly this morning, let's examine and let's talk about, this is where we'll spend the majority of our time, why did Jesus respond this way? Look at verse 15 and 16. This is a view of Jesus that people don't like. 
Um, we like the we like the baby Jesus in the manger. He's so tender and nice, and he's got the rosy cheeks, and you know, and it just uh, just um, this one a lot of people don't like, but this is God in His glory as well. So why all this passion? Well, Jesus is pretty passionate about it. Look at fifteen and sixteen, and making a whip of cords. I don't know how long that takes, but I'm guessing it takes a little bit. And so I picture Jesus just seeing what's going on. He grabs a rope from this ox. He grabs um, something from this, and he starts tying things together. And so making a whip of cords, he drove them. I want you to notice this. He drove them all. Nobody was left. No money changers, no animals. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sowed the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So if you're taking notes this morning, these, this is what you really need to hear this morning and, and really pay mental attention to. Let's ask the question, why so much passion about this to Jesus? Why, why is he so fired up about this? Why, why is there such an expression um, as he comes to the temple that day about this? And here's the first reason. See, he has a desire, and he knows this, that you can't have worship if you don't have holiness and righteousness. That's just the way it is. And so there's no way anybody could worship because of the chaos that's there. But he had this great desire for holiness in worship. And what he should have heard when he stepped into the court of the Gentiles was praying. He should have heard singing. He should have heard the reading of Scripture. He should have heard this sweet aroma of worship and people connecting with God. And that's not what he saw. You couldn't. There's literally no way in the world that you could worship if you were a Gentile in the court of the Gentiles. Not only that, if you were a Jewish woman... And you had to walk through all of that and then step in. Let's say the stage is the, the court of the, the women's court, and you were to step in here. How could you, as a woman, worship Yahweh and connect with God when all of this chaos is going out there? They didn't have soundproof walls, soundproof doors. I mean, you're talking just unbelievable loud noise happening and taking place. And so instead of, again, this beauty of worship happening, um, it was not there. And I believe. As we see him here putting together whips, it just shatters um, a prevalent image of Christ in our day that so many churches talk about where there's this Jesus who loves us so much that he just lets us off the hook and he's just okay with things like this. And it's just not the case. Um, Christ is concerned about righteousness and holiness in the church and he's not going to let us off the hook if the church is going to make a mockery of his name and so when you and i see jesus cracking the whip here again i want to remind you and i he's not attacking one person he's attacking a system that is robbing people from the opportunity to connect with god secondly let's look at this here's the second reason jesus responded that way first one is he has this great desire for holiness and worship secondly is that he saw that there was just a lack of deep reverence for god so as Jesus stepped into the temple that day, there was empty worship taking place um, in the name of Yahweh without any reverence for the name of Yahweh. And Jesus could not in that moment stomach it um, because it was not um, giving reverence to His Father. And let me make a few statements here that I think are important for us uh, this morning. 
Worship that is void of God-centered reverence of who He is is a tragic, sickening thing. But let's ask the question, so what is worship without reverence? Well, first of all, it's not worship. It's not worship if there's no reverence, there's no understanding, there's no mind connecting with God, and the heart is connecting with God. And it's this. This is what happens with worship that lacks reverence. It's an activity. It's a doing something without recognizing and understanding the holiness of God. Because if we're going to worship Him, we're not ever going to be perfect. We're not ever going to be holy enough. So that's not the issue, whether we've reached a certain level. But there's an attitude that must happen if we're going to come into the presence of God that recognizes this is a sacred place. It's a sacred moment. And worship without reverence is a religious activity that does not recognize the holiness and righteousness of God. And instead, inside the temple, which you would have been surrounded by symbols all about the glory of God and an invitation in the temple to connect with God, if you were to pause and you were to look around at things, this is what you would see. You would see lying. You would see manipulation of prices. You would hear shouting, pushing, gouging the poor, rejecting animals for personal profit. You would see greed. You would hear the clinging of coins. There would be animal poop on the floor, and there would be shaking of heads of rejecting animals, and then those who were going, I don't have enough money to pay the temple tax, and they're shaking their head because they can't afford a new animal, and this is, this is what you would see in the house of worship. And instead of hearing the prayerful pleas to God made by worshipers, you heard the mooing of oxen, the cooing of doves, you would smell the smells of animals, and you would hear the clinging of coins. And in that moment, the divine fury of God for the honor and reverence of his Father just welled up in Jesus, attacking the hypocritical worship of the Jews. What's interesting about the Jews is this, is they had an idea that when the Messiah would come, he would judge the Gentiles for their worship. Well, the Jews didn't go very far in their thinking about this. Gentiles who don't know God, they worship other gods, um, and they need to know about Yahweh. They need to know about God, and so the Jews just kind of shut them out and didn't want them to have really anything to do with that. They were not welcome, welcoming, um, connected with that, and so the the Jews had this idea is that when when the Messiah comes, he's going to judge the Gentiles, but what you see in the temple that day when the Messiah came, guess who he was judging? He was judging the Jews that they had lost their way of authentic worship. So those are the first two things why Jesus did this. One, a desire for holiness and worship. Secondly, a reverence for God. Here's the third one. There was a big shift of focus, and hang with me here. I'm going to use a word that I think she used a lot, but sometimes misunderstood. There was a big shift of focus in the temple from theology of knowing God, knowing the names of God, knowing who God is, to a pursuit of pragmatism. And here's what pragmatism is. Pragmatism is this idea that is very prevalent in the church today is whatever works to get people in the door, whatever works to get people excited about God, whatever works to get people to church, if it works, do it. Without ever stopping to think, well, is this actually God honoring? 
So you look around, and there's just all kinds of things that happen and take place in church. And so this was happening in the temple. There's nothing new under the sun. This is 2,000 years later. It is still taking place today. And so, so the Jewish leader's mindset was, well, let's just make everything easy for everybody who is coming to the temple. But here's what happens. Here's the issue when pragmatism or the aim of making sure man's needs are met Oh, you talk about man, you talk about man, you talk about man, and that becomes the ultimate priority in the proclamation connected to the church. If that happens, there is a sellout that happens where the glory of God gets neglected and there's a misunderstanding about that. Because here's the idea. Worship is never, ever, ever about us. Worship is always about the glory of God. And so pragmatism, without the connection, to strong doctrine always leads to a practice of faith. Now, this happens everywhere today. So all over Collin County today, people are in a room like this. Leading up to this encounter, the pastors or a pastor, staff people got together and they thought about this. Okay, what are we going to do Sunday? Okay, what are the elements of the service going to be? What are we going to say? And churches have two choices to make every Sunday. Do we, do we make our whole focus to be all about people sitting in the seats? What do they want to hear? What's going to get them in? What's going to get them excited? Or does a pastor and a worship team not think about the greatest needs of those sitting in the seats, but they think greater about the one who is seated on a throne whose name is Jesus? And I can just tell you this, every week, when I'm putting this stuff together and Mark Donahoe and I are emailing back and forth at times about what are we going to sing, our idea always is this, is we want to make sure that we're focused on him who is seated on the throne. I want you to like me, but I don't really ultimately care if you like me and like what I say on Sunday morning because that's not my job. My job is to proclaim truth in this room, to call you and I to not get caught up in the foolishness that Christianity is about us. It is not about us. It is about Him. And I think when we get the order backwards, then we become the God in this relationship where God's here to serve me and to answer my prayers and do whatever I want Him to do instead of us just submitting under Him and trusting Him and seeking His righteousness and knowing that He will add to us and give to us everything that we truly actually need. And so I want to just talk just for a moment more before we move on to the next thing um, about this. So to meet the practical needs of the worshipers in the temple, they allow things to come into the temple um, and, and make it not be a sacred space. And so let me just pose this idea to us this morning. We talked about this at the retreat last week. Dan brought this up as we were standing out there by the, by the campfire. You wake up on Sunday morning. I don't know why it is, but Sunday mornings, we're just more tired on Sunday mornings. And I think just a long week and then starting the work week tomorrow. And you wake up and you get in your shower and you get in your car and you drive to the parking lot here. And from the parking lot, you come into this building, you go into the kids' building and we have to ask this question, what do we want this time to be about? Do we want this to be a sacred space here, or do we want it to be a secular space? It's going to be a sacred space or a secular space, and here's what I mean. 
we talked about it at the campfire last night and, or last weekend, and everybody was like, Dan, yes, Dan, Dan, yeah, that's it. Here's the thing. When you, when you and I come here, the last thing we should want this time to be is about what we've experienced and seen all week long from television, radio, workplace, where everybody's about themselves, everybody's about climbing a ladder, everybody. We want this space, this time, to be absolutely different than out there. And if it's not, then what in the world are we doing? This should be a break from the chaos and the brokenness of our world, right? And so this, is, this, this time must be sacred. And that's why when Jesus stepped into the temple that day, they, it was a secular space. It was not a sacred space. And so Jesus' fury was connected to that because it dishonored His Father, was not connected to worship. And so this space must be different than any other thing. And so that's why I try to remind us every week, for those of you who come here, it's to remind us every, every week. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about your dreams. It's not about your ultimate fulfillment. It is about Him. He brings fulfillment. Listen, you know what this is about? Not that we reach all of our, dream, our wildest dreams. This is about the fulfillment and becoming what it means to be someone who belongs to Him. And He brings the transformation. And so we think finding life is all of this stuff that's connected to here. But hey, let's remember this. Is this our home? No. So let's don't live like it's our home. Our greater days are ahead, but they are not on this side of heaven. Our greatest days are beyond this earth. And Jesus stepped into the temple that day and He just couldn't believe what he saw. And the fourth thing is, I believe, as I've meditated on this this week, is there's a deep danger of grounding worship in convenience. And that's what they did in the temple. You could walk into the temple, and within minutes, you could buy your animal, give it to somebody, say a prayer, and be gone. They didn't have cars, but it was drive through worship already 2,000 years ago. You just get it done like that, convenience. Just convenience. And I want to just remind you and I of some things in the Scripture. There was a time when David wanted to make an offering. And this king was going to say, okay, I'll just give you this threshing floor. You can have it. And David, in 2 Samuel 24, 24, but the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. You see, worship should cost us something, and there's a danger in grounding it in convenience. Now, we have new floors in here. We have a playground that I think one day will be fixed again. Um, it, it's going to happen. Uh, we've painted the stains on the lodge. They're gone We've made some improvements. We're going to carpet the, the, the encounter building out there because uh, do not have light carpet if children and youth are in that building all the time. And so, so we're, we're, we're addressing things. But I, just, I want to remind us of something, church. And please hear this. My heart in saying these things is not, not to get on us, but it's to shatter a thinking that's not biblical. We have lights that are nice. We have a cool barn building. 
We've got new floors. We have a sound system. We're going to baptize inside on a horse trough. How awesome are we? Listen, none of these things mean that we've arrived. You see, the church isn't about this stuff. The church is about the glory of Jesus. And if we ever lose sight of that, then we've lost sight of everything. We've lost sight literally of everything, and that's why Jesus on that day just just had such a hard time with what he saw because everything was grounded in convenience. And I think you know this, that when you have to really seek God and you've got to get on your face and, and just trouble has come to your life through sickness or stuff with your kids or whatever, and, you, and you've got to get on your face and you've got to pay a price and asking and begging God, God, get us through the season. There's a sweetness in that worship that you never taste when things are good. Never do you taste it. And that's why Jesus that day just had such a hard time with that because he knew the reality is that people were missing out by making things so easy. It's actually they were making it difficult, but in an attempt to make it easy that you could just get your stuff, get worship done, and it would all be over. Let's look at the fifth thing that we see in the text here, I think, that comes out. By operating the temple in this manner, the religious leaders allowed for the exploitation of the poor. And in some ways, the temple was actually built on this, the prophets, um, where they created a system that was advantageous to the rich and the well-connected to be able to thrive in that kind of system, but the poor could not. The poor had to sacrifice so much more to be able to come to Passover and buy a sacrifice and exchange their money. Now, in the early service, Richard was here. Some of you know Richard. Um, he, is, uh, he considers himself a member of our church. Yeah, none of us have any kind of commitment like Richard. He lives in South Oak, South Oak Cliff, right? You know where South Oak Cliff is? That's way down south, downtown. Um, he wants to come here every Sunday, but he can't. So he, he, his membership is here, um, but he invests his life in the poor. If you remember about six to eight weeks ago, we brought coats, we brought blankets. Uh, Richard works um, and serves uh, people in Dallas that just live. They, he sent me a, uh, Angela sent me a video a couple weeks ago of uh, where our coats and these blankets went to. And Richard was at the first service this morning and he got up and left and people probably were going, gosh, that guy offended. Uh, Richard wasn't offended. He was going down to serve the poor. Um, drove all the way from South Oak Cliff to worship with us this morning and then left early to go back home uh, to pour his life into those who don't have a home. And there's people south of downtown Dallas that live in shanty places. I mean, just tragic, tragic stuff. Angel sent me pictures. And I think one of the things I want to say here today, and I think it's one of the reasons Jesus was so, so passionate on that day, is there should not be by God's people ever the exploitation of the poor, ever, ever. Now, I'm like you. Well, maybe you're not like me. I have darkness in this heart of mine sometimes. When I leave the Walmart parking lot and I see that family that's there, that they come back every Christmas and there's a thing in my heart that says, what's wrong with those people? Why do they come back every Christmas and beg for food and begging for stuff? And I have to check this darkness in my heart about that and remind myself, don't do that. And I have to go back and go buy food and McDonald's and other stuff and walk out and give it to them. Sometimes I roll my window down 
and I give them a 20. And somebody may say, well, man, what if they use that on something horrible? I, they, they, they may do that very well. But if God in that moment tells me to do something about the poor, then I do something and I leave that with God to deal with them about that. But listen, church, and particularly at this time of year, as Christians, you and I should not ever exploit the poor. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament that God's people should be cognizant of the reality of those who aren't as blessed as some of us, and we should invest our lives. James talks about this in James 2, that if a rich man comes in and he's got all the right clothes, and a poor man comes in and he's got shabby clothes, don't get the rich man and give him the best seed and let the poor man go stand, and it's literally, James says, and make him go stand against the wall somewhere. Don't do that. You've made judgments. And James says that's evil. That is not connected to God's heart. And that's why here at LifePoint, we don't make a big deal about, about dress. I, th- I think there's a, a, there's a dress that comes where, where it's not God-honoring. But then I think, but I think for the most part, listen, it's not about, it's not about, it's not about, it's not about looking good on the outside. It is about having a heart that understands the greatness and the glory of God and to be broken in the reality. So it's not about looking good. It is about Him being in control and leading our lives. And so we, as believers, are to love the poor and invest our lives there. And Jesus saw this unbelievable financial exploitation of the poor taking place in the temple. Just a couple more things. Here's the sixth one. The Jews had lost sight that God wants the heart, not a sacrifice. Listen to this. So Carl comes, he brings his lamb. I reject his lamb. I take Carl to Josh. Josh sells him a new lamb. Carl goes and he he makes a sacrifice. It's just cost him. He's been exploited and and now it's going to be difficult for him. Does he have enough money to pay for the stay in Jerusalem during the week and just all of the stuff that is happening and taking place and and um, but it, but everybody just kept making the sacrifice. Okay, God wants a sacrifice. God wants a sacrifice. Animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice. Bring the pigeon. Bring the dove. Bring the sheep. Bring the oxen. And they just made this. But listen to me. For hundreds of years, God had been saying through the prophets, God had been saying, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. I'm done with them. I want your heart. And you can hear from the prophets. Isaiah chapter 1. Right there, Isaiah Man, longest, man, long, long book. Long book. Isaiah chapter 1. It just says this. Don't bring these sacrifices and not your heart. Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah 7, 21. Thus says the Lord, host the God of Israel. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall obey my people and walk in the way that I commanded you that it may go well with you. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels in the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. And from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently, listen to this, sent all my servants to the prophets to them day after day, and yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck, and they did worse than their fathers. 
David in Psalm 51, 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. You see, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So I want to remind us today in the year 2019 that what God wants in this room today is not an hour and a half of your time in this building. What God wants is your heart. He doesn't, watch this, He doesn't want your money. He doesn't need it. He doesn't want your car. He doesn't want your job. He wants your heart. So what are we going to do about that? It's not our activity. We can sing all the right songs. We planned this service well today. We're going to baptize in a moment. It's going to be so beautiful. But here's the deal. It's not our activity. If our religious activity has no heart in it, it's not worship. It's empty and it's void. And here's the relevance in our day about this. You can have all the right lighting, the right sound. You can have the perfect location. You can have effective marketing of your church and perfect wording. You can have a building designed with all of the current trends. You can have children and student ministries that draw a crowd. You can have the right kind of music and you have the right kind of sermons that draw a crowd. You can have man-centered preaching where there's little focus on God's glory. And you can have all the stuff that looks like Christianity and you cannot have Christianity. And that's where we have to come to a place of do we want Christianity? And I'm, I'm not old-fashioned. Um, I think I'm funny. My children, don't, my children don't think I'm funny at all. Yeah, my daughter's back there going, yeah, he's not funny. I think I'm funny. And I could, listen, I could, I could, because God's given me a gift of communication. I can p- completely change the style of my speaking, and I think we could draw a better crowd. But what price would we pay? I would rather proclaim the greatness of the glory of God than anything. They'd lost sight that God wants the heart. He's not after a sacrifice. Here's the last thing. Jesus got fired up that day because of his love for the Father and for his love for people. And so that's why he says there, I, you have made my Father's house a place of robbers. Y'all are robbing. In God. Y'all, y'all are stealing from people where you should be helping people to worship. You're just robbing from them. And he just speaks there. He just wants this, this love and this honor to be connected to the Father. And he's so loyal to his Father. And he's, he doesn't want the Father to be dishonored in any way. And as I told you a while ago, the temple court was made up of several courts that led all the way up to the most holy place. You had the court of Gentiles. You had the court of the women, the court of the Israelites, the court of the priests, and then the holy of holies. And the animal changers, the animal sellers, uh, money changers, all of that kind of stuff, they were all located in the court of the Gentiles. And that was as far as a Gentile could come. And they couldn't, you, if you were a Gentile and you came into that, boy, you weren't worshiping. There's no way. There's no way you were worshiping because it just was shouting, pulling people. 
cattle moving around, oxen moving around, birds making all kinds of noise, sheep going, just, I mean, just everywhere. Just, I mean, you could not focus. And Jesus' heart was love for the Gentiles. And, and he knew this, that the temple had been built by the way that all the nations would come. And the nations were coming, and you couldn't come in if you were a Gentile coming to the temple court and worship. You could not do it because you couldn't concentrate. And so Jesus was fired up that day because he loved people, and he wanted, he wanted there to be no coldness of heart to anybody who wanted to come. And it was an inquirer or somebody who wanted to come to worship as well. And they had aimed to shut the Gentiles out from the presence of God. And Jesus said, I'm about to open up the place, boys and girls. And he does. Now, <clears throat> this really is the last thing I'm going to say. Okay. The disciples saw this. So what did they learn that day? When the disciples saw him drive everybody out, and by the way, this is a miracle. Think about two acres of animals and money changers, and it says he drove them all out. This is a miracle. And nobody arrested him. You may not know this or not, but located right outside the wall, of, um, of the court of the Gentiles, the Romans had built a tower that had guards up in it so they could watch what was going down there in case there was ever trouble, they could send people. And so here's Jesus just making a mess of the place. He's driving everybody out, and they're up there watching that, and nobody comes to arrest him because God's Spirit was moving and keeping that from happening. And he drives everybody out, and maybe an hour later, I don't know how long it took, for people to pick up all their coins, but you could a Gentile could go in there afterwards and they could worship. And the disciples saw it and they connected it with Psalm chapter 69, verse 9, that says this, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you, it has fallen on me. They connected his action, watch this, not with the crazy man. They connected it with Scripture. They knew this was a fulfillment of Scripture happening in the temple that day. And so here's the point. Every understanding that you and I has, have to come to about God must always be grounded in the Scripture, not in anywhere else. They immediately connected his actions that day with Psalm 69, 9. You see, Jesus had this deep-seated passion we must have this deep-seated passion as well for the house of God, which is, by the way, not this building, right? Where's the house of God now? Us, in these seats. The house of God is seated in all these, sitting in all these seats. So let's close with this. We have two choices today, just like when Mark and I planned this service this week, two choices. Is it going to be about those who are sitting in the seats, making sure everybody feels good about everything, or is it going to be about him who is seated on the throne? And our lives are that way as well. Is our lives going to be about us? Or is our lives going to be about him who died for us? And I want to remind you today, it's about him. And when that's right, when this is right, our relationship is right with him, then other things seem to just fall into place, do they not? Even when the chaos comes, and it comes, there's a perspective to see through the midst of that that brings us stability to our lives. Let's pray.